McLean has enjoyed international success with her historical novels about Ernest Hemingway's wives. But her latest book, When the Stars Go Dark, is a contemporary thriller tackling darker themes of child abduction and abuse. Welcome to the joys of binge reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler and in Binge Reading today, Paula explains why her latest book is her most personal yet, why she's drawn to writing stories about the quotes unclaimed and unmissed people in our world and how she never planned to be a Hemingway apologist to smart women. We've got three copies of When the Stars Go Dark to give away to three lucky readers in our October crime giveaway. Enter the draw on our website, thejoysofbingereading.com. And if you'd like to hear Paula's answers on getting to know you, our five quickfire questions, then do check it out on Binge Reading on Patreon. I'd like to give a shout out and warmest thanks to Shakura for being our first Binge Reading on Patreon supporter. I so appreciate you being willing to take the step, Shakura. For the last four years, I've been funding all the costs for the Binge Reading podcast, and it's great to have your support. For the equivalent of a cup of coffee a month, you can help defray the costs of running the show, sound editing, subscribing, hosting, etc., and get exclusive bonus content as a benefit sort of thing that we're discussing like hearing Paula answering five quick questions and the behind the scenes newsletter every month check it out on patreon.com that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash the joys of binge reading but now here's Paula hello there Paula and welcome to the show it's great to have you with us thank you so much Jenny it's a pleasure Look, you've had several acclaimed historical novels, and we will talk about those a little later, but your most recent book is definitely a little bit of a change of direction for you from what you've done with some of your other bestsellers. It's a California-based thriller. It is also, I hasten to assure listeners, a bestseller, When the Stars Go Dark. It was singled out as a Good Morning America buzz pick right at the beginning, and it's been described as your most personal novel so far. Tell us a little bit about how it came into being. Yeah, you know, sometimes the imagination has its own agenda. Do you ever feel that way? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's really interesting. I had no intention of switching genre. It was not conscious at all. The idea just floated into my head one day on a dog walk, and I was working on Love and Ruin, my third historical, and really in that world, you know, very happy and engaged and I love my work, but every once in a while, an idea will come along and just snag you sideways. And it was it was this. I just pictured this missing persons detective who becomes obsessed with a missing girl. And that's a kind of a cliche package. But I understood from the very beginning that what I was interested in was a deeper connection between these two that 
has something to do, has everything, in fact, to do with trauma and healing, what it means to, yeah, what it means to heal or survive what feels unsurvivable. Sure. Now, when the stars go dark, it does bring the lives of these two women together. A broken woman, she's a missing person's detective whose own life is in ruins. She's facing huge loss and she goes to a small California northern forestry town to try and pick up the pieces of her life and get herself back on an even plane. And she discovers that there's a local girl missing and she just can't avoid getting drawn back into this world that in a way she's wanting to escape. Was this a hard story to write because there is a very dark element to it, isn't there? Yes, a dark, you know, anytime you're dealing with missing and abducted children and all of that, of course, the subject matter alone is dark. And yet it was also difficult because as I got deeper and deeper into the book, I realized that I was telling quite a personal story. When the idea just floated into my consciousness, it wasn't obvious that I would include a good bit of my own backstory. I have Anna, like me, growing up in foster care and having endured a lot of displacement and loss and dislocation and in ban- you know abandonment issues. And it's really this background that gives her an acute sensitivity to the voices of the unheard, the disenfranchised, those who have been basically abandoned by life. And it's that it's this, you know, it's her story that hooks her into Cameron's story. And I don't know, it was really fulfilling. So yes, dark, yes, difficult, but really fulfilling. I just felt like I was writing a story that had deeper just a deeper well to plumb. It's one thing to write a story and know you're just trying to turn pages, right? We all like that. I love that as a reader as well. But yeah, it felt significant. I read somewhere that one of your sisters said that she thought that you'd written your own story. And yet at the beginning, you weren't intending to do that, were you? No, 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 no. Again, like sometimes the the imagination has its own agenda and sometimes we're hoodwinked, right, into thinking we're writing one kind of a story. And and in fact, we're writing something. It was about four drafts in that I started to loosen up a little and surrender to the more personal elements. I mean, it was always a missing persons detective. It was always a victim. And yet, as I started to fill in their backstories, Jenny, that's when I started to surprise myself. I'd be in the middle of a scene and suddenly Anna, my detective, would say something or think something that is very much what I think. It was super, super interesting. And of course, I had spent the good part of the last 10 or 12 years deeply embedded in these historical novels that take an actual woman's life. So this was the first time in a dozen years that I had the opportunity to tell a purely fictional story. And then (laughs) I went and did this instead. So it's, it's, (laughs) yeah. yeah, Now you set it in 1993, which is uh, pre-cell phones and obviously pre-COVID. But when you started researching it, there was some eerie coincidences that happened around 
what you discovered was happening in Mendocino in those years, wasn't there? Yes, absolutely. And that wasn't obvious to me either. If that's the theme, Jenny, it's that things aren't always obvious at the forefront. (laughs) I originally set the book in 2016. I thought I was writing a contemporary story and I kept running into, oh, just little just little dead ends or difficulties or frustrations. And I found that what I really wanted to do was tell good old fashioned story and not a procedural. I don't know if you watch any crime television, but everyone can solve a murder using their laptops, you know, based on blood spatter patterns. And I just didn't want that. I wanted people talking. And so one day, And it was, I was almost all the way through a first draft. I'm like, I scrapped it all and decided randomly to set the novel in 1993, which was the year my first child was born, 1993. And so the minute I did that very day, I was listening to a podcast, two FBI detectives talking, and they just happened to be discussing the Polly Kloss abduction, which was the largest manhunt in California history. And I grew up in California, so of course... I remembered the case. What I didn't remember is that it was the fall of 1993. So there I am listening to the detective recounting these details. And it occurred to me that, you know, geographically, Petaluma, which is where Polyclos disappeared, was 60 miles, 60 geographical miles from Mendocino, my town, and 10 days after my imaginary girl went missing and all the hairs on the back of my neck stood up. And I just thought, you know how we do sometimes, like what seems to be a fluke then isn't a fluke at all. We're being led to moments of discovery that will change the whole direction of the novel. Look, even as you were telling that story, because I didn't realise how it all linked together, I had goosebumps myself. It just is remarkable how the subconscious can draw everything into a picture. Isn't it? Mm. Isn't it? It's my favourite part about the writing process, I have to say. Mm. I think our Mm. subconscious mind is maybe the most interesting thing about us and all the things we can't explain. And I mean, I suppose that's why I put a psychic in the story <laughs> as well. The unknown, right? Just the yes. realm of the unknown. Yes. Yeah. Look, you referred to your historic fiction. That was pretty much, I think, well, I'm not sure about the Africa, but in the 20s and 30s mainly, wasn't it? The two books that have really resonated with me, the one set around Ernest Hemingway's lives, his first wife and his third wife. And the first one was called The Paris Wife, and it was about Hadley Richardson, his first wife. Now, I think I've heard you actually say on a podcast that a similar thing happened when you were thinking about writing fiction with that book, that it almost came to you in a brain flash. Is that right? Mm No, that's exactly oh, right. And yeah, yeah. I had at the that moment, I got my start as a poet. So I'd published two collections of poetry. I published a memoir about growing up in foster care and I'd published a first novel. And again, same, you know, never occurred to me that I might write a historical novel. But this idea literally came in a flash. I had picked up Ernest Hemingway's own memoir, A Movable Feast, thinking I might teach it. I was teaching a course on the writing of memoir. And it was, you know, January in Cleveland where I live. And I was much more interesting to me to take a little 
you know, vacation to Paris in my imagination. And I had no idea how it would, you know, some ideas come along and just blow everything wide open. I still remember reading that book in bed and my kids asleep in the next room, staying up until one o'clock in the morning and my hands were shaking. And I didn't know why this story moved me so much, why this version of the young Hemingway and their this woman whose name I had never heard of before really just touched me and and it changed, I mean, it changed my writing career, it changed my life. His third wife, so we'll talk a little bit more about Hadley in a minute, but his third wife was a very different sort of person from Hadley. She was a famous um, journalist and Hadley was very much a well, no, I wouldn't say a homebody because she sh- showed an amazing amount of resilience, but she was not a career woman at the beginning. Was it interesting to have those two contrasting figures, two different women who on the surface anyway might have appeared rather different and actually when you dug in perhaps weren't quite weren't as different as you might have thought? Yes. Well, I mean, here's Martha. She's a war correspondent, you know, and she's charging yeah. the front and doing all sorts of unimaginable things. Her life was bold. She was absolutely iconoclastic and she was fearless. Hemingway called her the bravest woman he'd ever known. And Hadley was, you know, a Victorian throwback, right? Yeah. When, yeah. when he met her, she was almost an old maid, you know, and would never would have dreamed of having a life full of adventure if he had not shown her the way. She later said that he gave her the keys to the world. And for that, she was always grateful to him and didn't carry grudges. But, you know, what was really interesting, though, to me too, Jenny, is not just how different the women were. So he was married four times, right? Married four Mm -hmm. times. Mm -hmm. And what was different to me is that to each of those women, he was a different man. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, you know, as someone who has accidentally become an aficionado of his life and having read (laughs) his letters and all of his stories and novels and, and really steep myself in his biography, it's fascinating to me. It's absolutely fascinating that the man Hadley Richardson met at a party in Chicago right, in 1920, was not at all the man Martha Gellhorn met just before he was about to go off to the Spanish Civil War. He was the most famous writer in America, and the man that Hadley met hadn't published anything yet except from some bad poetry. Mm, mm. You know, I found it touching because the way their story comes through in The Paris Wife, it is a genuine deep love story, and then he does betray her. And I was interested to hear... I think it, I don't know quite where it was when I've been digging around and researching this, but she only heard from him twice again in her whole life after they split in Paris. And one of those times was just a few months before he committed suicide in 1961. And that in itself gives you so much to think about in terms of those two people. And that thought, there was a little bit of a hint that He may have regretted his actions, although I gather from the memoir that 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 wasn't quite, it wasn't quite that simple. He actually had... It wasn't simple. Mm, And mm, I think mm. as much as he regretted losing himself, I suppose, along the way, letting ambition eat him up, losing the purer part of himself that went away to Paris to 
be up in his rooftop garret writing one true sentence at a time, you know? The mm. the um, absolute poignancy that comes through when you read the last pages of A Movable Feast, I think, come from, from that part. And it's very easy, isn't it, to romanticize early loves that have gone off and, you know, never can disappoint us again because they're trapped in amber, mm. aren't mm. they? And, you know, he and Hadley communicated a great deal over what to do with the with their son, you know, holidays, et cetera. They wrote back and forth. And but yes, it is fascinating to me that he reached out in the last days to mm. make real contact, you know, to mm. express his regret and to say, you know, I I ruined it. You know, it was yeah. it was my yeah. fault. It's very, I mean, it's heartbreaking. I'm still it's the heartbreak that led me into that story. You're right. It is very much a love story. And and honestly, you know, embarking on all of this, it's so funny to me because I was never even, I never even liked Hemingway as a writer. You know, I, he was always too masculine and too, you know, his prose is so muscular and, and, and just masculine. And, and I liked beautiful, you know, I was a poet. I liked beautiful sentences, mm. like what Fitzgerald was writing. And, and yet he really won me over because and I think that, he's, he's catnip really for, for a writer because he has so many sides to him. He's so enigmatic. Yeah. Yeah. The other very interesting thing that I noticed was that you, you, this area of historical fact and the fiction and where it fits. I mean, the historical novels, particularly these two that we're talking about, seem to me to fit very, very closely to what did actually happen and that you could have almost treated them like his, historical nonfiction. Oh, yes, um, sort of like writing a biography. Yeah. Yes, I mean, that is true. But when you take the details of someone's life, what I'm always interested in is what's below the surface, not just the historical facts on record, at, which are very well kept, you know, on such and such a date, they climbed aboard the ship and sailed to Paris, you know, on such and such a day, you know, Martha and, and Ernest were in Madrid when Franco's army is surrounding them on three sides. And, you know, the hotel was, you know, he kept a ham under his bed or whatever these details are. Yeah. But yeah. what we never know is what they said to each other in the dark, you know? Yeah. We never know yeah. what they fought about and not yeah. really. We, the language that's used and that's the part that mm. is really the act of the empathetic imagination to launch into those spaces where... Yeah. And you know, you've, you've said, and I think he said too, that you feel that fiction can give us the sorts of truths actually in that realm that memoir often doesn't. Oh, absolutely. And if I can just very briefly take us back to when the stars go dark. I mean, I wrote about my own growing up experience in foster care in, yeah. in a memoir, in nonfiction. And that was many, many years ago. It was my first published book of prose in 2003. So here we are ages later. And I would say that this novel is far more, not just more personal, it's more honest to the experience of mm. someone growing up in that way than I was able to write about as a younger woman. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and part of it's the distance, you know, Jenny, part of it is just being that much further removed. And I think that's what Hemingway himself would say, 
right? If he puts himself in the character of Nick Adams in this Nick Adams story, then he can say something more truthful than he might reveal, that he might mm. expose if he is Ernie, right? Mm. Mm. Your own story has got a certain Cinderella aspect to it because as you've mentioned, you you did have a very difficult, hard, tough, far tougher childhood than most of us ever have to endure. And yet you've come out in this amazing life as an international best-selling author. Um, And I wondered, you're still very aware, as you've mentioned, of the unclaimed, unmissed women like your characters in When the Stars Go Dark, but you've had this almost Cinderella escape from that that life. How did you put those things together when it was all happening? Well, it was messy. I mean, it's one thing to look back and say, oh, and I went from here to here, but there were many Mm. years when I was trying to be a writer and sacrificing everything to do that, and my family thought I was crazy. (laughs) You know, why would I? borrow $30,000 to go and get a poetry degree as the divorced single parent of a two-year-old. You know, <laughs> that's a crazy thing I've done. And and I've just done, you know, all sorts of, I was 35 years old and still waiting tables in a high-end margarita bar <laughs> when I had a 10-year-old and I had no health insurance and I had no 401k and I had no plan except to continue to do what I'm doing. So Cinderella, I suppose, you know, sometimes when people talk about, oh, she's an overnight success, it only took 20 years. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, that's right. And it seems to me that you, that's very much what you've been willing to do to take those risks and really put in the work. And there's kind of a parallel with When the Stars Go Dark, because Changing genres like this can be a very risky thing for an author. You're not sure whether your established audience is going to follow you, not even necessarily monetarily or professionally, but personally, has it been worth the risk? That's an excellent question, and thank you. I think it has been worth the risk, no matter what happened commercially with the book, because I believe that we have to continue to test and challenge ourselves in order to grow. And with this idea, you're right, I ran the risk of disappointing my readers. I ran the risk of disappointing the story itself by letting it down, not being able to tell it well, by not honoring the idea. And there were so many moments when I was humbled by all I did not know about the genre and the conventions. And a little humility, I do believe, is good for us, again, if we want to continue to grow as as artists and as, as humans. Yeah. Look, just flicking back for a moment to the historicals, I'm very much in the same um, mind as you. I've never really felt drawn to Ernest Hemingway because of all the, you know, big game hunting and all that kind of thing. But at the end of it all, at the end of all of your research, did you end up actually liking the man? I did. Not in an uncomplicated way. I often joke, how is it now my actual job to defend Ernest Hemingway to smart women everywhere? But he (laughs) is... I don't know. He's just so human. He's just so flawed. It's, you know, it's it's fascinating, particularly to look at the letters and see 
all that's exposed there, the vulnerabilities, the sensitivities. And then, of course, there's his genius. You don't have to like his prose to understand that he changed letters, like he changed literature. There is no voice, at least not in American literature, that's as recognizable as Hemingway's. Mm. So it's hard not to admire that. And then no, I think it's been a real exercise in empathy, in compassion. Hemingway himself once said, it's not the writer's job to judge, but to understand. Yeah, yeah. Perhaps just turning away a little bit from the actual books to your wider career. We've talked a little bit about your experience as a trauma survivor. Have you got any tips for resilience building for people. I mean, this this last year or so has been obviously a, a very shaking time for a lot of people. What is the secret of resilience, do you think? You know, again, that's an excellent question. I'm not sure I've really thought about it except to say that sometimes we can be overwhelmed by the facts of our life, you know, when we set it out all on paper. And it can be a little daunting and it can feel as if life doesn't have, is not on our side, right? Mm. All of this God has forsaken me or the universe doesn't care about me or, or what. I think it can be enormously helpful to understand that sometimes your deepest wounds could possibly be your biggest gift, for instance, mm. all of the time when I was a kid, I was escaping my own loneliness and sense of futility in the library, you know, and yeah. read, read books as if my life depended on, on it. And in a way it sort of did. And I didn't know, of course, that I was making a writer in that yeah. moment, but, you know, or the way that I might, I believe that my empathy grew out of that experience as well. My openness to the stories of others, the way that I'm moved and endlessly fascinated by human experience, what we do, what we do, and why we do it. All of that curiosity certainly comes from that wounded self. And so I think it can be very empowering to see the whole picture and to claim that part of your story, to claim all of it. Yeah, yeah. So as you were journeying through your own experience, was there some epiphany when you thought, realized, I want to be a writer, not just read other writers? You know, it took somebody else to point it out to me. I think I never really thought that someone could be a writer, although I always wrote. I mean, from the time that I was very young, I wrote poetry and I wrote stories, and but I always thought I was going to be something else. There was a certain moment where I thought the most I could ever really reach for was to be a, a secretary with a Honda Civic. Like that really was like the, the furthest I could allow myself to dream. And then I, as an undergraduate student, I had one more class that I needed to take. And that's when I let myself take a creative writing class. And it was a poetry class. And it was really that class that, you know, one of my professors said to me, you know, I think that you could do this. I think you have this gift. And then when I went to graduate school, I took another class and then another class. And, and suddenly I was pointed in the direction of studying to be a writer by others. 
I think that's probably a product of my growing up years too. I didn't know what I could hope for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, if there was one thing that you think you might have done to to get where you are today um, in this seemingly sort of fantastic position of being an international best-selling author, what would it be? Is is there a, a key character or talent or even event mentor that helped you make that? Leap. A secret sauce. <laughs> a secret sauce. A yeah. secret sauce. We all want the besides secret sauce. Besides reading, besides reading, which I think is the one thing that can make a writer, any writer, a better writer, and can really make a writer, not out of nothing, not out of scratch, you know, but it's definitely the one thing that you can actively do to pursue your craft. But the second thing I would say is just not, just determination, not giving up. There were many, many talented writers uh, when I went to study writing in my class. And, and I'm the only working writer now, not necessarily because I'm the most talented, but because I'm the most stubborn. <laughs> every time <laughs> I got bad news, maybe it's the underdog in me that just yeah. pushes back against that energy, almost yeah. as if the universe is saying, right? Show me what you got, right? Yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. Look, this is the joys of binge reading. So turning to your reading, I, I'm fascinated first actually to know what might have really been your magic books when you were, in, you know, escaping to the library, but also because we like to suggest to people what they could be reading today, talk a little bit about what you're reading today. And if you ever have actually been a so-called binge reader, or whether you've always been a rather more <laughs> well, serious Well, some of it's embarrassing, reader. a little embarrassing. <laughs> I mean, when I was very young, I was, I was absolutely a binge reader. I would eat my lunch in the library and I would read two and three books a day. And sometimes I would read even, you know, alphabetically <laughs> or by subject. I would read everything I could find on ballerinas or everything I could find on dragons or I found Ursula Le Guin and then I read everything I could read on, on by her. And I think that sometimes can be so, I don't know, freeing or something, just sort of let yourself lose that way. And then as a teenager, here's the embarrassing part. My friend's mother used to go to these yard sales, garage sales, and come back with literally bagfuls of Harlequin romances, you know, <laughs> like the paper pulpy paperback books where bodices are ripping open on the, <laughs> on the cover. And yes, well, that was what I was binging then. But recently the binge that I've been on is reading Joan Didion. Oh, yeah. Oh, so, so good. Mm. She has a collection of essays called We Tell Ourselves Stories in Order to Live. I mean, that says it all, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. But I had long been a fan of her novel, Play It As It Lays, which she wrote in the 1970s, but I hadn't read any more of her fiction. So just this year, I binged on some Joan Didion and read The Book of Common Prayer. And the other novel, I think it's called River Run. But anyway, they're fantastic and very different than what you might think reading her essays, but there's still that pristine intelligence and almost like crystalline observation as if she's got this perfect awareness. 
Mm. Yeah, it's Mm. wonderful stuff. Fantastic. Yes, your own books are regarded as literary historic there's that literary edge to them yeah they're not really genre fiction are they I mean this latest one might be no and the suspense Mm -hmm. the thriller is I you know would also be literary as well but yeah 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 yeah. look circling around and looking back down the the tunnel of life if you were doing it all over again with the benefit of hindsight is there anything that you would try and change Hmm. I don't think so. I really don't think so. I think I just want to go back and whisper in my own ear, like, you don't have to worry so much. It's all going to be okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. So what is next for Paula the writer? Can you give us a little bit of a hint of what you're working on now and and whether you're continuing with this new thread or whether you're going to look back to more historicals? I wish I knew what was next. <laughs> I, I'm i in that holding pattern where I'm waiting for the next idea to strike me. Part of me would really like to continue with the story of Anna Hart and the other characters in that, in that world. I was very invested in them. They feel like real people to me. That world feels so fresh and sharp. But honestly, I really do believe that it's up to something bigger. You know, it's up to my subconscious with its agenda. Or, And so right now I'm just trying to be as open and as receptive as possible. What happened, you know, both when I leapt over the cliff's edge and started working on The Paris Wife and when I started working on When the Stars Go Dark and kind of threw everything out that I'd been doing for, for a long time, there was, you know, terror, obviously mortal terror, but just this utter, it's like the ceiling blew away. And I realized that I could write anything. Mm. Do you know Mm. that feeling of absolute freedom? And honestly, who can give that permission to us except for ourselves? Right, Mm. Like forget the marketplace, forget the competition, forget everything except what's calling you and understand that you can do anything. I mean, that's, you know, that's that's a really great place to be. Fantastic. Now, apart from Joan Didion, when you're, it sounds like you're at one of those stages when you want to just really feed your own creativity. And so what do you do for yourself when you're wanting to feed your creativity? Mm. Well, I binge. So besides Joan Didion, I've also on, been on a little Jeanette Winterson binge, who I haven't read since, oh my God, 20 years, I think. Yeah. And the other thing that I did was, and I'm so proud of myself, is I signed up for a beginning painting class. Ah. And I'm not artistic. I mean, I'm, I'm very visual. I feel like I love the world of description and you know where I live in my imagination is very painterly but in in or in my children are all very artistic but I can't I've never held a paintbrush and so here I am in in a class and my first class was last week and I stood there in front of my little easel and had to draw cubes or something and was demoralized and I was in a flop sweat I mean I was so embarrassed I might as well have been back in you know grade school but when I left I realized that it's very very good 
to find different ways of self-expression. And we never know where that will lead to feed those, nurture those creative parts of ourselves. Yeah, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Well, we are coming to the end of our time for this. So just tell me, where can readers find you online? And do you enjoy interacting with your readers? Has the pandemic made a difference to how you manage to talk with readers? Yeah, I think it has. You know, my conversations, I guess you would call them, with readers, for instance, on on Instagram has gotten much more elaborate. So I'm on Instagram. You can find me at Paula underscore McLean. I'm, I have a website, so it's just paulamclean.com and I answer every letter I receive. And I really do enjoy talking to readers and making contact because we no longer do, I haven't, in-person events, which was really my favorite thing, is to really make contact and talk to somebody face-to-face and hear what they're reading and what brought them out of their house and what they want to talk about. And and so if these are the avenues that we have, then I think we should use them. Yeah, it's wonderful. I, I must admit, I'm not such an aficionado of Instagram. So the thought of actually having a conversation on Instagram is interesting rather than it just being a one-way medium. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. It can be a conversation and to ask questions and get answers back or to hear what other people are, like I said, what other people are reading or what's inspiring them. It can be, yeah, it can be, it can be very nurturing. Well, that's wonderful, Paula. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been fantastic. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone as a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.